Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey everyone, welcome back to Seeking Witchcraft. I'm your host, Ashley, and today I have on Marshall, also known as the Witch of Southern Light on TikTok and other social media platforms, co-host of the Southern Bramble podcast, and a self-published author. Welcome, Marshall, to the show. Thank you, Ashley, for having me. I'm uh, so excited to be here. I'm so uh, excited to have you. I feel like this was a long time coming. <laughs> yes, I've been listening to your show since quarantine. I can tell you right now, um, your show was really, really uh, uh it was really wonderful to listen to. I took a lot of walks, like a lot of walks during quarantine. And your voice was definitely the thing that kind of carried me from block to block for many of those days. So I'm really, really excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much. That's so very sweet of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we're here to talk about Marshall and his newest book, Cunning Words, A Grimoire of Tales and Magic. So Marshall, let's start before we start talking about the book. Let's talk a little bit about you so the listeners can get to know you. Um Let's talk about your journey of witchcraft and how becoming an author has played out. So what's a little bit about your background? Like, what should we know about you for people who uh, never, <laughs> never heard of you or people who do know you? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. I am Marshall. I'm a folkloric and traditional witch, which is kind of a departure from usual because I feel like every time I listen, it's, an, it's, a, it's a gardenarian or a chaos magician who's also a gardenarian. I'm just like, I love this. This is great. Because I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in learning about all sorts of practices and craft. And I think that is how we grow as practitioners. Um, so everyone, I am a traditional and folkloric witch. Folklore, stories, narratives, trial records, and the landscape are really all major things that inspire my craft. I live in Texas. I live in a big city in Texas. So uh, I keep the location private, but I live in a city in a beautiful little neighborhood of my city. It's It's been a really, really up and down path in witchcraft for me. I found Wicca when I was very young. I want to say middle school. My first book was, of course, Buckland's Big Blue Book. I feel like everyone says that. Everyone says that, which is very prevalent at the time in the 90s. And as I got older, you know, my spirituality fluctuated and I really, really started to dive into traditional witchcraft. And it was very inspirational from Gemma Gary, who wrote Traditional Witchcraft, a book of Cornish Ways, The Black Toad, The Devil's Dozen. I think she does absolutely gorgeous work and it really taps into less... There is ceremony, but it, it is a little bit more about the landscape, about animism and less coven work. There is coven work there, but I, I'm a solitary practitioner. So I find myself extremely influenced by animism, the idea of spirit in all things. And so my practice really follows more of, of a, a landscape-based based practice. So like I'm very into land veneration, the spirit of the crossroads, my genius loci, or the witch king, if you will, witch queen, if you want to get into the entire cosmology, but might that might be a little bit of a bigger conversation for another day. That's kind of me in a nutshell. Great. Yeah. You know, you bring up traditional witchcraft and the difference or that you're not a gardenerian, which is, oh my God, possible on this podcast. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was going to ask, I mean, but you kind of answered this, like what does traditional witchcraft mean to you? And like, how does yeah. this differ from all the other initiates or people in initiatory traditions I've had on this podcast? Like what's the difference there for somebody who's never heard of this before? I think that's a really, really wonderful question. A little bit of extremely vague history to understand where the terminology of traditional witchcraft really um, was inspired by, where it birthed from. And interestingly enough, uh, it really kind of goes back to, there's several characters. One of the major players was Robert Cochran during around the exact same time period as Gerald Gardner uh, was kind of cultivating and building these practices back in the, the, 50s time, 50s ish, I believe. And they very much disagreed on several major foundational practices when it came to ideas of spirit work, being solitary versus coven work, being more private versus wanting to spread and be more public. So they really 
they kind of had this major clash. And as Donatella Versace says, a clash of ideas where all inspiration and creativity comes from. So they kind of broke off in different branches. And they actually have some some similar foundational ideas, but they really go in different directions when it comes to spirit work, source material. Um, I'm very into, as I said, animism and landscape. So the genius loci or the, the spirit of place is really where I lean into. Some might have different names for that. I I call it the devil of my land or the folkloric devil, um, which goes back to a lot of a lot of folklore, a lot of trial records with this idea that if you look back in history, a lot of these old stories about witches and folklore and this devil they were going to see in the woods, they it wasn't this Luciferian styled Satan of Christianity. It was more of like this this spirit of place and it kind of connects back to the idea of of animistic spirit if you will so that's the kind of the folklore background that inspires this type of spirit veneration and the spirit of place and the idea of of working at a crossroads and there's a whole nother side of that which gets into the idea of a witch queen or a witch mother but that's again another conversation side thing to understand a little bit about how i view this because if we're getting to personal cosmology i think sharing about how it went from this is the general tradition this is how i interpret it this is how i apply it is really important if 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 people are willing to share i see very much this idea of a folkloric devil or witch king as a physical representative they represent the physical they represent the crossroads the herbs the land the actual things that we can touch feel experience and the witch queen is is kind of like the thing that comes through that initiation, the non-physical, the feeling, the ecstasy, the space between the stars. If it's, I could literally wax quixotically about the mother, but it's it's really really hard to explain because she is what I consider to be the non-physical, and he's the gatekeeper to that access. So um, that's why you sometimes hear like the idea of a physical gatekeeper at the cost crossroads, the key holder. That's kind of my personal cosmology. So you understand where that sense of possible duality and then the in-between between them. And that gets kind of deeper into my book, actually. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, you know, I, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking of all the different overlaps with uh, people who work with like Hakate, for example, as well. Absolutely. Uh, with the crossroads and the keys. I did want to bring up something that you mentioned in Please. this. So you talked about the word initiation. So mm-hmm. is this something that you need to be initiated into? Is this something you don't so, need to be initiated into? <laughs> it's very interesting. So Cochrane himself actually started the Clan of Tubal-Cain, which is a capital T traditional witchcraft, meaning it is a very specific tradition. It is an initiatory tradition. It is a closed coven. You don't get to know what happens inside those coven workings until you have initiated into it. That is, and you understand that more than anyone else yeah. is Gardnerian. That's absolutely <laughs> it. I am a lowercase traditional witch. Lowercase meaning these are traditions that are are passed down through time, through um, through records, through inspirations, through folklore. I apply them to my life, to my landscape, and to my spirit work that I do in my local place. So I'm not part of a coven. I'm not part of an initiatory tradition. But I did do what I call a self-dedication or a self-initiation through spirit i went out into the woods it was the full moon it was midnight at a fireplace and i did all the things that one might do that we don't talk about sometimes when we do them afterwards but i did a self-initiation that i designed off of several um, inspirations from Gemma Gary and Keldon actually so would you say Gemma Gary and Keldon i know you mentioned them a little earlier um would you say those are the sources that you may use in your uh, or pull from in your daily practice to help supplement your craft Keldon is a wonderful author when it comes to information from traditional witchcraft. Uh, They wrote The Crooked Path, uh, an introduction to traditional witchcraft, and The Witch's Sabbath, uh, which really goes into the history of how the concept of The Witch's Sabbath ended up really, really uh, inspiring the motivations of of a modern-day traditional witch. And I love history. History informs where we are now, so I would deeply, deeply recommend both of these books. And if you're an audiobooker like me, The Witch's Sabbath is an audiobook, so you can listen to it if you're out taking walks with with me. <laughs> There's also a really, really wonderful book by Roger J. Horn called Folk Witchcraft. It's one of my absolute favorites. You can literally read it in one sitting. It's got so much really succinct and straightforward information that teaches you how to take this inspiration and apply it to your local landscape so you can become your own and create and build your own form of tradition. That sounds really awesome. You know, I think I have The Witch's Sabbath now that you're mentioning this. It's a great book. cover, right? Yes. 
Yeah, either I have it or I had like a, a press paper of it that I had on my fridge for a while. I know I definitely had that. And I'm like, do I have the book? I think I do. I think that was one of the books that my high priestess Zazel was trying to take from me when he came over and he saw it on my bookshelf. It's it's really wonderful. <laughs> Kelvin goes deep, deep into the history of understanding where the original source information that was used to attack um, and, and, and make accusations when how it went from a uh, actually a history of anti-Semitism over to a history of, of, of witch accusations and then where these ideas of flying came from, where these ideas of all these things ended up coming from, talks about different really amazing and, and well-documented confessions that I feel like we can only get from really heavily academic sources and they have condensed them down into a wonderful tome and I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about our history. Yeah, I'm definitely going to need to check it out now that you're telling me a little bit more about it because uh, that sounds really interesting and I think it's just been sitting on my bookshelf um, in my pile of books to read, which I currently have a pile sitting Don't here on my desk those? and staring at me. Yep, <laughs> I think it's just never ending. <laughs> so how do you like being a solitary practitioner? Have you ever worked with other people either in a coven or just a one-off group setting before? I've cast a few spells with several people, and um, the only one I ever feel comfortable casting with is one of my closest friends. I, I ultimately, I just, I know I'm probably not responsible enough to have like a straight up monthly meeting and then like have the motivation to do it. I have my own personal things that I do monthly at home, but I like being solitary. I feel like my craft is extremely personal, and I'm happy to share some of it in my writings on my page. But I do find that I really like being solitary. I feel like there is a, it's kind of funny, I say solitary, but I don't really feel like I'm alone because part of this process is understanding the spirit work I'm working with, the spirits of the herbs I'm working with, the spirits of the elements, the spirits that I'm calling into my, my workspace when I'm within ritual or casting or doing a working. So it feels, it honestly, when I am actually in the middle of ritual, it feels very private and personal. And that's just my experience. So ultimately I think, I think that's why I kind of decided to stay solitary. I'm also really introverted. <laughs> that's probably why I do well on the internet because I'm super introverted. When I am out of social battery, I'm just like, no, mm -mm, I gotta go. Peace. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I completely understand. Like I work with a coven, of course, I, I run my own coven, but when it comes down to your own personal practice, I mean, this is your own spirituality. So I mm -hmm. completely understand. And coven work can help you get in touch with Dee Dee if that's your thing or a spirit or whatever you're working towards as a group. But ultimately it's about your relationship with whoever, whomever you're working with. And Absolutely. so I can completely understand the appeal of just wanting to stay solitary and keeping that private into yourself. And, and I like having these conversations. Like I feel like these are, are where I get my community aspects, talking with other practitioners and sharing our, our experiences. That's my, my good time community. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons I really like working with a coven is because I'm extroverted. <laughs> so yes. I like having that outside, like people in person in my place. Like we could talk about like, oh, I had this crazy experience happen and they're not judging me because they're like, I also had a crazy experience happen. And we could just like swap those stories over a drink or some tea or something. And I, I love that. Yeah, me too. I have I have a couple of friends that I've made online that just live across, literally across the country. And I love be having the opportunity to be like, hey, okay, can I send you a voice memo? You'll never believe what just happened. And then they'll be like, yes, please. And then we'll just kind of go back and forth with each other. And it's nice to share, but it would be nice to have that in person. I think I'm just not committal enough, <laughs> committal enough to make it as regular. And I totally applaud people who are. Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I totally get it. <laughs> uh, so you talked about spirit work um, in your personal mm -hmm. practice. Do you work with any deities or is it just strictly with the spirits? Or if you want to keep that private and personal, that's completely fine too. No, I don't mind sharing that at all. Um, I think that's actually one of the biggest major things when it comes to traditional witchcraft. Most based off of, of the information that I have learned, that I have experienced, that I've been exposed to, most of what we do and what I do isn't really deity based at all. I don't really see, I see every, I see it more as like a, a collective of spirits. And even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking like, I'm sure there's someone out there who would like to argue verbiage with me. But again, I think this is kind of where it comes down to that personal aspect. Because as an animist, I believe there is spirit in all things. Um, when I talk about the spirit at the crossroads and I talk about the witch king, I never really think of him or them as as gods or goddesses. I think more of them as 
very specific spirits or general spirits, depending on, on how I'm approaching the situation. And because I do see everything as a spirit, I kind of approach it from that mindset, from that worldview and perspective. I did try DD work for a little while. I did a lot of, uh, I did an entire Hikate class, which was really, really fascinating. And I feel so much more knowledgeable about the history, about the subject matter of working with her. But I felt like it, it was something that was more like a vacation than it felt like it was home. And this feels like home for me. And I, I, for me personally, I like that most. Was this one of the Jason Miller courses? Yes, it was. Oh my gosh. I've been wanting to take one of those, but that is a hell of a commitment. It is a commitment. It is extremely ceremonial. It is very committal. It it, it absolutely influenced my practice. And I can share a couple things that actually are already out there that have come out before me. Like one of the things you are required to do is you have to uh, say the mantra that is given to you a hundred times daily. And that has been one of the most inspirational parts of my practice is creating a type of committed thing that I promise to do to keep that ongoing relationship with my spirit court. And when I say spirit court, I'm thinking of, you know, the witch king, the witch queen, and then the familiar court that comes with. And those are my personal familiar spirits that I've built relationships with. Yeah, I have definitely done things in my own personal practice of either doing a ritual every single night for a month, either... That's commitment. Yeah, a meditation every single day for a month, something for a deity or for whatever I'm working with every single day for a month. And there is absolutely something to be said about opening yourself up in that psychic way Mm -hmm. of connecting with something that's greater than us, uh, in my opinion, (laughs) or just like with spirit and and with magic and witchcraft in general, a lot of crazy shit goes down in that. And, and it's a very intense time, but yes, it is absolutely a commitment and it's difficult. I mean, there Mm -hmm. were times I was doing rituals where I would have to get up and do them before work or you know, in the middle of the day, because I knew when I came home after work or I was going out somewhere, like I wasn't going to have time to properly dedicate. And yeah, when I first heard about the mantra for Jason Miller's course, I thought somebody told me it was a thousand times a day. And I was like, oh, no. So it's a hundred <laughs> times in a row. And if you miss a day, the next day is a thousand. Because the idea is oh. that every single day, the minimum you do is say this mantra to keep that gate open. If you basically miss a day, the date closes and you make up for it by over overextending yourself to really reopen that gate and keep that 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 just that pathway flowing. So that's the idea. And for me, I just found that literally just rationally wrapping my mind around that was so simple. And I feel like, you know what, I wrote a very specific prayer or, or thing that I say that is in reverence to my spirit court. I say it every day, once a day, somewhere, anytime, even if it's like, I can't get up to light incense. I'm so tired. I'm just going to say it here in bed. <laughs> and I will. And, and that's okay. Well, props to anybody who does a thousand. Hopefully you're not missing all those days. And if anybody's interested, that is a course by Jason Miller. I haven't personally taken it. Marshall has. I have mm-hmm. heard amazing things, though, from the people who have taken it. I did a Hakate inspired ritual which was the hakation which was only nine days versus a much longer period for jason miller which i'd recommend the hakation but it's also expensive to buy that book so it's expensive either way that's right (laughs) okay so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about social media you talked a little bit about being an invert or introvert and you have almost over 4 million likes just on TikTok alone. <laughs> Do I, really? I didn't look at that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's over 4 million likes. And I was like, damn, get it, Marshall. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about this. Like how, or how are you inspired or what inspired you to start making TikToks? And were you surprised to see it get so big as, as it has? Yes. Very surprised. Like you have to understand a lot of the rise of like witch talk came from quarantine. We were all at home. Like it was just... It was already existing beforehand, but it just exploded around this time period. And I was only just getting into witch social media for the first time because before then I just, I wasn't into this. I wasn't like connecting it to social media quite as much. And when I started seeing some of those on TikTok, I was like, look, and I started following the hashtag. And then I just, I was like, they're putting their books of shadows on camera. Like, 
like they're giving like they're doing these things on like you have to understand so i grew scandalous. up i know a scandalo like i grew up <laughs> in this in the 90s when like i would all i had was the exposure of of you burn that book when you die nobody sees this you know even like even i even had teen witch by silver ravenwolf where she talked about the fact that she was fired from her job for telling one of her coworkers about being a witch, because that was a very real thing. And it was a very real thing. I actually had multiple incidences, one where I was brought into the principal's office because of rumors that were going on around me that I had a voodoo doll in my bag. And they were like, instead of instead of telling everyone to stop bullying me and spreading rumors, they said it was my job to make it all stop and i'm just like it's like well how many students are here i can make more voodoo dolls right right <laughs> actually that was my first spell i did a freezer spell oh. which was from silver raven wolf's teen witch <laughs> but when it comes to social media I, I i was exposed to the fact that like people are just putting it all out there like it was a new generation and that was actually when i was first exposed to traditional witchcraft was about three years ago to that time period and it absolutely completely switched my worldview it, it changed from just being very you know uh at that time it was very goddess centric and i kind of switched over into this different mindset and it was like i i felt like i found a little bit of a missing puzzle piece for my personal cosmology and then it just exploded and evolved from there so i decided i wanted to start like i want to make one of these this is really cute I want to I want to make a, a little recipe for this. And so I just did little recipes. And I think the first one was like a rosemary cleansing water, which was literally rosemary essential oil and like moon water. And then I sprayed it and it was a cute song. I think, you know, it, I think it was like Runaway by Aurora. And it was just one of oh, those that it, it, it got a lot of likes and views and responses. And I was I liked that. I liked that I was sharing something that people liked. And I still have that spray bottle and I still use it when I cleanse my space. It's so easy. I also started noticing a lot of really bad misinformation. People were making things. They would be like, like people would ask me, I don't have rosemary essential oil. Can I use real rosemary? And I said, absolutely. But it's going to go rancid pretty quickly. So I felt like I was seeing things that yes, this is an okay thing you can do, but I feel like there needs to come with a caveat. And, and I felt like on social media, there it was a lot of all or nothing. It was a lot of, you know, if you put one thing out there, people are going to look for the exception and try to call you out on something. So I started trying to make more content that was about the gray area of things. And I feel like it was really welcomed. And um, I ended up branching over to Instagram. And I actually really like Instagram now even more because it gives me the opportunity to write really long captions and I can explain things much deeper. And I just kind of kept growing and growing. And then I opened the podcast with Austin Bainex Bramble on Instagram. And that's, we're in our third season now. I, I, I love having this. Thank you, podcasters. You understand. It's it's such a beautiful commitment because it is something you commit to doing and put out there. But at the same time, it opens up so many doorways to talking to other practitioners. I learn people from practices all around the world, things that I never would have had exposure to. So the social media has one of those things that really kind of took me by storm because I wasn't expecting it. I literally had another Instagram, a private personal one for, I want to say six years with thousands of stuff on it, never got above like 5,000 followers. And I wasn't even trying. It was just my friends and people and whatnot to, to turn around and have people respond so intensely to the things I was putting out was almost a little overwhelming. And I, I had a couple of people who I met along the way who were really, really kind in guiding me with information that I needed. Olivia uh, was one of them, absolutely. Temperance, Alden, Nike. And I, I felt like Frankie, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> finding Frankie on TikTok was one of those funniest things ever. Because I'd be like, what is this person doing? Are they playing games with deity? I, wait, what? Because it was my first, again, TikTok exposure to people just straight up talking about conversations with, with deities. And I was like, they're putting this on the internet. It was just, it was so new to me. I'm in my mid thirties for people who may not know. So for me, that was just one of those things where I was excited to see that the secrecy was not so intense anymore because it meant that we got to share. And since then, I felt like just my my learning has exploded. It's interesting for me to hear your journey with it because I think a lot of it mimics my own of... Um things really blowing up around the pandemic for sure. I think when I started my podcast, it was in 2019, like mm -hmm. April or no, it was, I think May of 2019, something like that. And I don't know if there was a lot of witchcraft podcasts at the time. I never listened to podcasts. So I truthfully just didn't know. I didn't 
start with any intention really, which is bored. And during the pandemic, especially the beginning of the pandemic, it just blew up even more than it already had in 2019. And I think a lot of people just really during that time of, of, of uncertainty, were really diving deeper into their own spirituality of like what their beliefs were. And yeah, it, it was quite crazy as a content creator, I guess would be the proper phrase to see that exposure and that growth. And, you know, one of the scary things, I guess, about putting your information out on the internet is people can be brutal and mean. And especially over the years, I think as practitioners, we should always be learning and always be evolving and always be expanding our mindsets of how we view things in the craft based on experiences and reading books and talking with other practitioners. And the thing about the internet is that it's there forever. You can never go back and change something on the internet, regardless if you delete it. And with misinformation, um, or not even like misinformation, but sometimes like misstating something or not having the full knowledge for something can be hard for content creators who are first starting out because at that time, that might be all that they know. But then as they grow in their craft and in their knowledge, they realize, oh, there's actually more to it than what I thought, or maybe I didn't understand it correctly. And it's hard to go back and fix that because people will usually start at the beginning. Um, so yeah, I don't really know where I was going with this. It was more of a thought I had when we were talking. Oh, I completely agree. And I think it, I think that's a really, really important train of thought that we should all be considering when we approach the internet, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to what we're exposed to. I mean, think about what I just explained when it comes to what I was exposed to is basically books from the 90s. And then I didn't really do much research after that. Like I had my practice, I had the things that I did, this is what I believed in, this is how I did my things. And then to stumble upon what was evolving, what was changing, it was my first exposure to so many ideas, I was still of the mind, where there is no devil in the craft. And so to, to be exposed to this concept of do they just say the devil? Do they just say the devil? No, no, no. It says in this book, and I guarantee you there are thousands more just like me um, who, are, who are just now stumbling upon to this concept. And then, of course, that's going to involve having to have a very, very nuanced conversation around the history of the word the devil, the folkloric aspect where the actual idea of this horned figure came from and in history versus the actual biblical figure, which actually wasn't even mentioned in the Bible because it was from a part, book that was removed from the Bible. It's it's such a huge, huge conversation. And so I can see very much how in the 90s and during these times period, especially because that was inspired by satanic panic, it was important to just say, you know what, let's just remove this. Let's just go ahead and put this aside. We don't need to deal with that word, that concept. And I completely understand why that was introduced and the importance of how that was introduced. Because to be perfectly honest, I don't know if... I don't know if witchcraft would be where it is today if the people who made the decision to to make that sort of like separation during the satan like before the satanic panic if they hadn't done that i don't think we would be where we are today i think it would have been stifled wicca may not have made its way really out of the uk over to the over to america as strongly as it did like the way in which the world would have changed for us would be very very different if it, had, if it hadn't been for that but if you don't know about it if you don't know the history about it, then it completely removes any context for why we say those words today, why that was written in all of Silver's books and Scott Cunningham's books and all of the books back in the days. Like that was that was the pervasive thing to make sure it was understood. So no one, no one would have any uh, suspicions or, or uh, negative thoughts around this religion, which is about earth and nature and goddess worship, because it is. And I don't think we'd be where we are today. I had a similar conversation with Amy Hill and on one episode and Jack Chanick on a recent episode, actually. It's in a similar vein of talking about looking at history and the things that people did over history um, were very radical at the time. Mm -hmm. But if we look at it now, we're like, oh, like that's whatever. Like, oh, why did they do that? Or like, oh, that's you know, we might look at it like, oh, that's homophobic or like that's transphobic or mm -hmm. that they viewed this thing in this way. But if you look at the time period of mm -hmm. why they did that, you have to understand like that influence. Like they had to we have to meet them where they are. Yes. Um, and understand how we've evolved from from now, there. And now looking at where we are now, 
hopefully we're also going to be evolving in our thoughts collectively as a community. And it's going to be interesting to see how that shift is when we're old and gray on our rockers. And (laughs) these people, like these teenagers are going to be on the internet on whatever platform will take over TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook and Twitter talking about whatever they want to talk about. Hopefully not hexing the moon. We're over that. (laughs) Um, And so it's just going to be interesting to see what we think is so progressive now Mm -hmm. as practitioners we're going to be replaced by something else. And I'm excited to see the shift. Absolutely. Uh, I was just listening to um, your episode with Jack about uh, Queen of All Witcheries, because I'm audiobooking that right now. And and he said something that really stood out to me was, yes, there it is. He said something that stood out to me was talking about like, yes, when when these this type of, of fertility-based goddess worship was kind of being cultivated um, at the we look at it now and we think like, oh, we don't want to reduce that to a body, to fertility, to this, to this. But at the time, it was, it was, it was extremely feminist forward because it was from a time that was still so – everything was so misogynistic when it came to dogma, when it came to a lot of um, uh, churchianity and, and conservative restrictions. So at the time, this was a radically feminist thing. And as time has evolved, we have evolved with it. And what I think is so wonderful is that's what happens, I think, in witchcraft. When you don't have dogma that is stagnant, when, when you are continuously exposed to evolving human experiences, witchcraft evolves with it. And I think that's really, really cool. And I'm, I'm, now happy to have kind of platforms that I can share my evolution. I can see other people's evolution and we can kind of all grow together. Witchcraft is absolutely a living thing and we mm-hmm. need to keep feeding it with new ideas and there's no winner. Into it. There's no winner. Yeah. There's and, no and race. <laughs> there's no race, you know, the gods, or if that's what you, uh, who you practice for or mm-hmm. spirits or the cauldron sitting at the witch shop, they're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully the witchcraft is, is definitely not going anywhere because pandemic and recession and right. it's a whole different conversation, not for this podcast, but <laughs> you know, it's not going anywhere, but it's, it's should be constantly thriving and we need to evolve with the times. And I'm happy that we are doing that to mm-hmm. this day. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about Marshall's new book, which I have read a good portion of it so far. I still need to finish it, but it is amazing. And I'm really excited to talk about it. So Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, welcome back. <laughs> so, Marshall, let's talk about the title of your book. Let's just talk about your book in general. So, as I mentioned before the break, I have read a good portion of it. When I say a good portion, I mean it's broken up into different sections. first section is many stories that all kind of come together at one point, which I thought was awesome. Um, I was expecting, you know, people say they're writing a fictional witchcraft book. It's going to be a long novel of, you know, 300 pages of like the same story. But this one is broken up into different pieces, which I loved. I love, love, love reading these like short little stories at that eventually all intertwine with each other. Anyway, I'm talking a lot about this book. You can probably tell that I really like it so far. (laughs) I need to finish reading the short stories. But how did you come up with this book? Like, tell me all about it. 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. My book is called Cunning Words, a, a grimoire of tales and magic. It is a grimoire. I mean, it is a practical working grimoire in three parts. Um, the first part is 13 stories. They're short stories, narratives, parables. They, they, they share witchcraft in a narrative sort of way. So you as the reader can be inspired by the story that you are reading and it is going to contribute to your personal craft. What's really amazing is as an animist, again, I said, you know, there is spirit in all things. So when you have that book in front of you, when you are reading it, these characters, these are, are spirits written in, in, in a written form. They are put into a story. They are sharing with you how they can work with you. And I think it's up to the reader to sometimes really glean how to apply that into the practice. Um, I called it Cunning Words because this book is written for the most cunning. You you do need to kind of sometimes read between the lines or, or kind of really think about the information's being delivered when it says like oh she looked up to the sky and the moon was full and looked over to the to the person and said it's a good thing the moon's out tonight i can see better my you know like it explains okay so this act is being done under the full moon and then it gets to tell you maybe a chant that was done and it might say you might say this thrice and that's understood. Okay, so I have this chant, this candle, it's under the full moon and I say this thrice and I use these things. And what's really cool is in the third part, the the practical side, it's actual the cunning compendium. It's a collection of all of the magical workings from the stories and then some. So so you will notice in the in the back, there is um, a chapter titled The Red Book, and that will connect to the story of our mother in red. There's one card titled The Green Book, and that'll connect to the story of our mother in green and the one that's the black book, which of course will connect to the story of a mother in black and all the magic written in are, are, are basically examples of what would be in these characters, grimoires, spells, magic workings that you can do in your own practice. You can adapt them to what may work for your local area, or you may do them exactly as presented in the book. The second part is poems. And to me, I always found poetry to be one of the most magical forms of writing because it doesn't just tell you a story, it plays with how you speak musically. I feel like it's a spoken form of music. They tell sometimes tales, sometimes they are actual literal ballads of, of, of spells themselves, things that you would read out as an offering to a spirit you may be working with. Uh, it might be information about certain plants, about like bindweed, which then gives different ways in which you could use that specific plant in your craft. Another one for protection, another one for creating a, a, a oil called a cunning oil, which is my personal witch's oil that I like the most and use with many of my different little crafty things. So it's a, it's a working grimoire, and in general, it can be used by anyone, no matter what your belief system is, because when you work with it, you're working with the spirits that are presented in that book, and the most important part is to work with them, you have to know their story. So one of the things I really loved about the book was that when I was reading through the short stories, I really liked that I felt like I was transported back in time, back to ye old days, <laughs> per se, of um, when you think about witchcraft back in the day, not, mm -hmm. you know, not the 90s, not the 50s, but back in like the pilgrim -y times, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. I felt like I was there reading uh, these stories. Like I just felt like I was part of that. And there's something I don't want to call it primal about that type of witchcraft, but it just feels so like what's the word like raw I don't know it's like it it pulls on my heart or like pulls on my soul like I, I feel it very deep and I really really loved being transported back as I was reading the book um there's this artist named Kiki Rockwell I think her name is I'm not sure if you know who she is but uh she does witchcraft inspired music and there's this one song she has called burn your village that I don't know I was it just like reminded me of that song because it's very like of the times and witchcrafty but anyway <laughs> i like that you use the word raw i think that's a wonderful word to describe it uh, you know witchcraft can look like so many things and throughout time it has looked like so many things we have have witchcraft that has presented itself in herbs in bones in blood in fire in water in glitter like <laughs> throughout time we have had magic present itself there's so many different ways when it comes to my personal craft it, it is a little bit more stripped bare. It is a little bit more inspired, like I said, by history, by folklore. So I wanted the stories to really make you feel like you were being pulled back into a time that is unnamed, that is felt more than said. So 
that's that. I mean, you're describing exactly what I, I was hoping to intend. So I'm really, really happy about that. Yeah, I was going to say you definitely su- succeeded in that because that's exactly how I'm feeling. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so I know we're talking a little bit about uh, like it, there's the history involved with the book, but what inspired you to sit down and write out these stories? Was this something you kind of already had going through your practice in the back of your head or did something happen that you're like, I need to write this book? I I was really inspired by a lot of old grimoires. I love grimoires. I think they're so beautiful. And I personally, because I did have a lot of trauma within the church, um, I personally felt like many of them involved working with with aspects of either Christianity or specifically or Judaism or a form of of appropriated Judaism. And I just kind of started to feel like, you know, I I absolutely understand the importance of how it has affected all the all of our craft over the past centuries when it comes to the Black Pullet, the um, the Keys of Solomon, uh, uh, the Book of Oberon, the the Swarm Book of Honorius. Like Swarm Book of Honorius is where we get Theban, and then when you actually look into it, you find out there's no Theban in it. Like like we have these things that have inspired us that ultimately get so 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 evolved they actually don't even connect back to their origin source. And I wanted to create something that I felt like gave me that feeling that I had when it came to my practice and put it in a grimoire, put it in a story, create my own testimony, you know, like he's a Solomon. That's a story. It's about testimony. And then the spirits that were worked with, if you go to black pullet, it's a story of a man passing on his knowledge to um, a new applicant. If you go into a lot of these historical texts they're delivered to you in the form of some sort of mythos, mythology. You got, you have Celtic mythology, you have Norse mythology, you have Hellenic and Roman mythology. You have these stories of gods and goddesses and spirits and and heroes and villains. And to this day, people worship them. They work with them. They call them down into their practice. And I was very inspired with this idea of of showing what was up in here in my mind and in, in my my personal perspective around my craft and put it in a singular volume or first volume, if you will. And I started, I want to say, very, very early 22. And I started with some poetry, some poems, and then I eventually wrote a story. And then I, because I was so, so inspired by Gemma Gary's The Black Toad, I'm not sure if you had a chance to read it, but it's this fascinating collection of practices from West Country Witchcraft over in England, Cornwall and Devon. And she talks about these, I think it's an organizational skill, where she talked about three pathways of magic, Old Mother Red Cap, Old Mother Green Cap, and Old Mother Black Cap. And so each of them had their own specific subjects, you know, uh, uh, charms and spells, healing with plants, and then hexes and curses. And there was something there that was just like, there is a story there. The, the, this comes from, Old Mother Red Cap actually comes from an old saying that would be like a local a charmer, um, a pelar, uh, maybe someone who might heal your warts back in England and then spread its way over into Europe. And then this concept kind of grew into this organizational skill in her book. And I was so inspired by it. I just felt like I wanted to give a voice to these spirits And then under their tutelage within these stories, you can kind of learn how to work with healing with plants or using not magic to change your life or or working with sigils to create change within your life or, you know, hexing someone who absolutely wronged you in in the most worst possible way. So I know a lot of these were pulled from folklore or not necessarily folklore, but like history in Mm -hmm. grimoires. But do you have any personal connections to any of the characters that you wrote? Absolutely. Um, okay. <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. Like a sly smile. It's like one hundred percent. Well, <laughs> I actually I put this in the book, so it's not. I guess it's not too much of a. Maybe it's a little bit of a side secret. I named one of the characters after my friend Olivia, so you may know which of Wonderlust. I named the uh, Mother in Black, Oliviana, inspired by her because I sent a lot of my stories to her over the pat over the last year. And, and she would give me feedback or she would listen and she would respond. And there was something that I just felt getting to know. I got to know her really, really well over the last couple of years. And I felt like I wanted to kind of honor and thanks. So I named, I named her Oliviana based off of Olivia. What's really interesting, though, when it comes to the spirits in these books, their actual written names, in my opinion, the reason why I felt I was comfortable giving her that name in the story is their names 
in the book aren't quite as important as the spirit of their character. So for me, the mother in red is is one of my most favorite characters because she was kind of like the godmother that I felt I needed when I was a young queer child and didn't have that person to just make me feel like I was okay exactly as I was. I didn't need to change. I didn't need to be anything else who saw me for me. I, I feel like I love my mom. I love my family. I love everything and all my friends. And I'm very, very lucky and privileged to have the acceptance of my family I do. But there were still struggles. There were still times where I was told to dress differently or to tone it down or, or all sorts of things that I feel like when I wrote Our Mother in Red, I really, really channeled the person that I feel like I just wish I had had to be there for me. And she had a little magic. That'd be really great, too. Were there any authors that possibly inspired any of your work? Oh, Gemma Gary, 100%. In fact, I, I feel like I almost somewhat modeled the mother in red after her, sort of. I feel like uh, she has just become this this voice that I love to hear anything she has to say because I feel like she says it so beautifully. If you ever read her book, she writes she writes extremely flower, very very sing songy in a way that I just feel like delivers information in such a gorgeous way, and it makes me feel like this isn't just a book of words; it's a book of magic, and and I really associate that with her. Um, I was very very inspired again by her work and in, in creating this, so I, I do very much see that in her. So I wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. do you have, of the 13 mini stories, do you have a favorite one? That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. That's a do really a, tough a, a, one. Like top three. Okay, okay, okay. Um, top three, <laughs> hands down, Our Mother in Red. Um, I love Our Mother in Red. I think it's it's one of my favorite stories. Second one is probably Three Wise Healers. I think Three Wise Healers is one of those stories that tells a tale of something that was extremely uh, close to me. Um you may not know it when reading it, but when you read the author's note, have, have you had a chance to read that one yet? Yeah. So I was okay. going to mention one of the things I really liked about the book too, was that after the mini stories, you had an author's note yes. explaining a little bit about your thoughts on the, whatever it, it was a mix of things, either like yes. your thoughts of where something was pulled from or an experience that you had. And I like that it like really tied in for the reader to understand where you were coming from when when writing this. So I really appreciate those author notes. They were a nice addition. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. The author's notes were really important to me because I feel like I'm a, a an ex-90s Wiccan, so I have trust issues. <laughs> I'm sure you can understand what that feels like. To, to, to grow up arguing for the ancient lineage of this pre-Christian religion, and, and I mean arguing for it, I kind of feel like now, while I understand factual history isn't necessary to inspire a belief in a practice. So for me, again, I wrote this book. So I under- <laughs> I can make my own stories that inspire my practice. That's totally cool. But I do feel a little bit guarded around books and, and people that make ancient claims about the ancestry of this lineage. So like, I love the book of Aradia, but I'm a little dubious about its origin. I love some of the histories that I've learned about different, uh, different uh, practice origins, but I get a little concerned when the book is basically like anonymous author. I'm like, okay, that's fine if it's anonymous, but I, I think we all can agree that King Solomon did not write the testimony of Solomon and, 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 and the, uh, he didn't write the three books of King Solomon. You know, Moses did not write the sixth and seventh book of Moses. Like we understand this now. And so I wanted to make sure when people read my book, it was very clear that I am not making any ancient claim that these stories come from some long lineage. They're all inspired by something that obviously existed before me. But I wanted to also make sure with these author's notes that you got to understand as the reader exactly why I wrote this, where this came from, who inspired it. Um, there's one story that's inspired by Tijiba from Salem. There's another There's another story that's inspired by um, by my personal experience with the monkeypox when it hit my hometown. And I was surrounded by people who were locked in their homes for days on end with an extremely, extremely scary and painful disease. 
and 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 no one that was helping us at the time. Um, I've written a story about. I wrote a parable. This is the third one I would probably choose. Is the seven holy siblings because um, that one's my favorite parable. It talks about personifying the days of the week and connecting the days of the week with their planetary houses and how you then can work with these spirits as petitions. You can call upon them and work with the magic they have to offer from their virtues, whether that's Monday with the moon, Sunday with the sun, Wednesday with with communication and Mercury. Like you can actually work with them as as spirits to petition to. And I feel like uh, that was a really, really unique way of approaching planetary magic and and days of the week. And that's all backed up again by by uh, the four books, uh, sorry, the three books of occult philosophy by Agrippa. Again, inspired by something from centuries ago, but modernizing it in a way that we as modern practitioners can apply it in a folkloric sort of way. And I love that for a lot of reasons, but a very basic one is Agrippa is very expensive if you do not have it. Oh my God. <laughs> I have yes. it. I do too. I, I don't touch it because I'm like, I don't, I don't even want to breathe on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll tell you. For the books. I, I flipped through that and I worked through it a lot, especially in the planetary magic part throughout the last couple of years. I've been very, very exploratory in, in working with planetary seals. It's very, very fascinating. And I think it's really, really cool to apply it more. I am not a ceremonial magician. I'm sorry. I, I am not going to wake up at, at, at certain times to do it on the hour. I do it more folk style. I go by the day. I go by the day and then the moon cycles. And that that is fine for me. There is a book called The Seven seven spheres i believe it's called have you heard of that one i haven't that one has rituals that you could do for each of the planets where you can do things like waking up at the hour of jupiter for example and you wear a certain outfit associated with that planet you do a ritual associated with that planet and you could either do it over a week Mm -hmm. um I know some people have done it and they said they really liked it a lot, but it did get a little complicated sometimes when it'd be a work day and they have to wake up at three in the morning to go, I don't know, yell at their altar table (laughs) for whatever their their ritual was that day. And I have mad respect for people who, who commit to that level of celestial magic. Same here. I like sleeping, so I will do my witchcraft when I'm awake. That's right. (laughs) Similar question, different content. Do you have any favorite mini rituals or chants or spells in the book. One of the favorite things I, I put in there was the beads, chanting with beads. That has become a really, really big part of my practice. And trance work and chanting with beads are how I do a lot of spellcraft. So that involves, I, I, I do have a whole chapter on building yourself a set of beads. You can buy, you know, if you want to buy just um, a mala, you can go and do that. Those are sold at a lot of spiritual shops. You can go to you can go to like any hobby any hobby store and get some beads if you want to make some. You can design it however you want to fit your practice. Or there's a very specific way you could design it, which I lay out in my book, and how you could apply it to your practice. But mostly, what I liked about it is that they become a concentration tool. They become a trance tool. You can use these beads to count chants, to count mantras. Um, that was something that I learned, again, in the uh, Jason Miller class, is using a set of beads to count your mantras. And so I know I have four sets of 13 beads. And each of these 13 beads uh, represents, and this is my personal one, each of these represents a specific familiar spirit that I work with. And so if I am working with a Southern hare who represents the earth healing prosperity and the land, if I want to do a healing working, I might have a little chant that I built personally to work with the South, to work for the, the, the element of earth, to pull in that spirit of healing and I might go around that entire uh, set of beads for every single bead saying that chant. It's, it's very Catholic reminiscent, isn't it? It creates a type of trance because when I first start, I start that first bead, I'm looking at my book, I'm reading this four-line chant. It's actually quite simple. And they go to the next one, then the next one, the next one. The more I say it, the more I have memorized it. The more I have memorized, the more I've taken it off of paper into my mind. Soon I'm closing my eyes. It's rolling off of my tongue. I'm only halfway through my beads and I am just saying it on repeat. It almost becomes like when you say the word fork over and over and over again and it becomes kind of weird sounding. That's what it turns into and it completely disassociates your mind from the place that you're in. You slip into this, this trance state where what you're doing is you're, you're kind of, remo- this is how I see it. I'm removing myself from my physical place. I'm entering a, an in-between place. I'm putting my will, what I want with this, with this chant that I'm calling the spirit up to do. 
I'm putting that out there while I'm in this in-between place. And then when I finish my set of beads, I pull myself back out. That was my spell casting. That was my, my, my ritual. It was putting what I want out there by using this set of beads in the middle of a trance work, calling upon this specific spirit or element or familiar. Because again, you can build these based off of your own practice. You get to write your own chants. You can use things from history. You can adapt things from history. Or you can start from scratch. I'm a big fan of trance work. I don't use it as often, but I know a lot of people also like using flying women with their trance work. I do. I think- I think I've only used it a handful of times. I don't really like not being completely sober when I'm done my, my witchcraft. I think that's why I don't like it uh, or don't use it as often. But I don't know. It's a new year. Maybe I'll retry again. Mm-hmm. But I love the beads and using that as a way to get into trance work. I also have a it's like a wooden square and it has a labyrinth in it. And so you can take this like wooden pen and you trace and it goes in a circle and it, you go through the whole thing and you just kind of get yourself into a trance doing that. You really zone out very quickly in that. Oh yeah. It's, it's awesome. I know somebody who bought one off of Etsy and I will say if you do buy one online, uh, actually you know, his is a labyrinth. Mine was, it was like the God, what the hell what is this thing called? It's like the three circles kind of like the two circles here and the one up here and they're like all swirly it's like it's like triafold or try 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 triascal try i know what you're talking about i know what it is <laughs> it's it's escaping my mind right now but i they, i had that one my friend had the one that was the labyrinth and that was a little bit more um complicated because it kept getting stuck at the corners but is it the triskelion yes thank you that's it <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. That's yes. what I had. The Grand Triskelion. <laughs> We're looking at each other on video. Sorry, everybody else. But <laughs> anywho, um, really quick before we finish up with the book, I just wanted to give a nod to two other things. One, I love the artwork in it. I think it's really quite lovely. And two, I absolutely love that you took the time to consider readers who are neurodivergent. I have a lot of friends who will do audiobooks because of things like that. But one of the things that you did with your book is you broke it down into individual paragraphs with the space in between. And I'm not neurodivergent, but even for me, like that was so much easier to read. I'm a speed reader. So I just got through those <laughs> real fast with that. So I really appreciated the, that you did that. And I wanted to give a, a nod to that because I think that that was very lovely. Thank you. I, I myself have, a, I mean, I will look at a page, a wall of text. I will get three sentences in and start nodding off completely shut down. It is very difficult for me. So I went out of my way to put a space between, and this is something I'd actually do on my Instagram posts to, to break them up so they become more more digestible. And I realized this works in books so much better. I, I don't understand why more people wouldn't do this. And I'm like, well, of course, because it takes up a little bit more paper and it's more expensive to create. But I felt like it was worth it because if it means that that anyone, anyone at all can absorb this material better, I say go for it. And so all of my publications will be including this. So should we expect anything from you in the future going forward? I am in the process of writing right now. I I do have some long-term plans. I don't want to say too much, but I, I have been extremely inspired by my experience with writing my first book. And it has definitely opened up some new pathways and ideas and methods of writing. I write on the elliptical on my phone. Like I literally write I in, I write in trance. So, so what I always do is I, I, I go to the gym, I get on the elliptical, I put on Lindsay Sterling, of course, obviously. <laughs> and then, and then I write sometimes for like 30 minutes to an hour on the notes app of my phone. And I will, I'll be like, why is it slowing down? And I wouldn't even, I it won't even feel like time has passed and I'm dripping in sweat. And I feel like it's such a it's such a fascinating experience writing like that. The creativity flows so much more. And then I come home and I sit down and I'm just like, I can't do this. I can't write like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a standing desk with a walking pad and it is a game changer. Let me tell you. Absolutely. So, Marsha, where can people find your book? Uh, I publish, I self-publish through Amazon. So you can buy the ebook, the black and white copy, the color paper paperback and the hardcover all on Amazon. There is link trees in my bios on 
all of my platforms as well. It is sold worldwide, so you can get most of these pretty much worldwide. And if you really, really, really don't want to support Amazon, you can buy the black and white copy on barnesandnoble.com. If you own an occult or metaphysical shop and you want to sell my book, it is available. The black and white version is available on Ingram Spark catalog. So you can carry my books if you want to there. I might do a signing if you ask me. <laughs> awesome. And I will put a link for that in the bio as well for the Amazon listing. But uh, along with that, what is your social media information so people can find you online, which will also be in the bio? Ah, thank you. Um, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Witch of Southern Light, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Marshall WSL. On all of the link trees in my bios, you will see links to all of my different things, my different platforms, my Patreon, videos that I've been in. There's also a lot of free resources. I've collected a lot of free resources over the years. So if you ever want like a a list of herbal correspondences. I got hundreds. Like there is a link that has hundreds of herbs and it's got them listed out in alphabetical order. I have that for crystals. I have that for days of the week. If you want to do planetary hours, I have a planetary hour calculator on there. So I try to keep it pretty expensive, expansive and it's free resources for anyone who wants to use them. Amazing. And if anybody wants to find me on the internet, pretty much type in Seeking Witchcraft podcast, but you can find me on Instagram at Seeking Witchcraft. Twitter at Seek Witchcraft, Facebook at Seeking Witchcraft Podcast. I have a Facebook page called Witches Seeking Witchcraft, which Marshall's on there sometimes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Some interesting posts on there. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I have a Patreon. It's just Seeking Witchcraft. Um, but those are some places you can find me. And those are also some places you can find Marshall. So thank you so much, Marshall, for coming on. This was such a pleasure having you. Long time coming. I was happy we could do this. And I was so excited to be able to talk about your book because I've really been enjoying it so far. Thank you for having me. It, it, I'm really, I know it does feel like a long time ago. I feel like I finally, I finally get to hear uh, my own conversation because I will listen to this afterwards because I listen to every episode. <laughs> I look forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you everybody for listening and we'll talk to you all later. Bye. <laughs>